Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I am joined by guest Brandon Reed. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Can we start off by you telling the folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so long story um, short, hopefully made short. Um, <laughs> I own a company called Loft64, and we help uh, urban multifamily real estate developers create immersive rooftop amenities and outdoor living experiences. What that really means when I explain it to the layperson is that we create really cool resort type outdoor spaces, pools, hot tubs, anything cool if you've ever been to a really great resort on rooftops for large apartments. Cool. So specific. Is there is is that as specific as it sounds or are there are you a dime a dozen? It no, it is as specific as it sounds. And uh it, I don't even know if it was necessarily a strategic thing. It was just a really interesting space within. So I'm in the industry of landscape architecture, and I used to take a lot of pride that, hey, I'm a landscape architect, but no one ever understood that that what that was. Mm-hmm. They would always say, oh, yeah, I got a brother-in-law that does that, you know, thinking landscaping or whatever they think. My tree's dying. Around. I need some help. Yeah. So just that generality um, was really frustrating. And, um, yeah, anyway, so we just kind of – I did a rooftop space few years ago, well, maybe eight, 10 years ago, and just kind of was a really interesting challenge. And we're really creative. That's really what drives us. And so it just kind of evolved over the last five, six years. We've we've gone deep down the rabbit hole of specialization. And I can say happily that after five, six years of going down that, it feels I'm more excited about it than we've ever been. So it's been a really great kind of challenge, but also great opportunity. So we actually got talking initially to discuss your transition with hourly billing and the proposal template. But before we do that, I want to drill into this a little bit more because you're a creative person. There's a lot of creative people listening. And won't you get bored just putting pools on roofs? (laughs) Isn't that the best? I even have a new employee that just, we just hired a new project manager. He's, He's got more experience than I do. It's our first hire of that kind, but he even asked that he does a podcast. And so we were just uh, going through a podcast interview and he was asking that too. He was like, Don't, aren't you going to get bored? Like, aren't you worried that if the market tanks, you're going to not have enough work or that you're going to, you know, it's, yeah, it's not gonna be a challenge anymore. Or, And I honestly can say being in this, that it's, it's, I think Blaren's described it this way. You go into a door and you realize there's a million other doors that are yet to be opened. And so I've even kind of described it as vivid technicolors. So once you go down, it's almost a reverse pyramid. When you start going down, the deeper knowledge you get, the more patterns you recognize, um, it actually becomes more interesting because you understand the challenges and it becomes, because you know those challenges, you're able to actually create better solutions. Mm -hmm. So for us, at least for me, it seems way more interesting. And also here's the best part I feel like is once you get a taste of competence, and clients come to you and, and they don't question your fees anymore, or it's it's very rare that they actually question your fees and you can charge a two or three or five X more than the next guy. Mm-hmm. And they don't associate you with that guy that mows lawns or whatever. <laughs> um, suddenly you have your own category, you know, and then you can kind of, they don't have anyone else to compare you to. And so it just becomes, it's like, there's just so many good parts to this of doing it. But I think it's just that initial upfront, like most people have that fear or they just, 
traditionally, that's just what most firms, and I'm speaking within the industry of landscape architecture, of course, Mm -hmm. but my experience of that is just most firms are traditional and they kind of do what they've always seen others do and they kind of copycat each other and they all just are competing at the bottom. Yeah, it's so true. Well, thanks for that. I I just wanted to like call out that common, I mean, myth really of specialization. But what we're really here to talk about is hourly billing. So can you give us a little bit of a taste of what your life was like before when you were doing hourly billing? And perhaps back then you were also more general, uh, generalist firm. Uh, and then maybe what, you know, what the, what led to the transition, how you made the transition and what things are like now. Um, hourly billing has been, I think it's just once again in my industry too. I think that's why your stuff resonated with me so much was just that you're, you're confronting this head on, but um <clears throat> It's just something that is just something people always do, right? It's just this hourly, everyone's tracking their hours, number one. We're required to log in, log out every day. Um, I guess for my business after, and and the the hard part I would say too, is this mindset. Even now I still have, sometimes I'm like, how do we really quantify this with with time with employees, with with time with, with clients, all that kind of stuff. Are we actually with the value pricing and things, are we pricing it enough? Those are all conversations in themselves, of course. But what I realized is with hourly is the the few times that we get or the anytime we get questions on what we're charging, it was with hourly billing. Mm-hmm. Because if they saw one, it's like once you open yourself up to the hourly, then you start to they start questioning everything you're doing and wondering, well, you know, you spend a little extra time, more time than we thought you would spend on this. So they start to question every hour. Right. <clears throat> and right. so the the times that we've gotten in trouble for, uh, not necessarily trouble, but where they've clients have questioned our fees is when we're doing hourly billing and sending them a breakdown and they don't agree with it. Yeah, that makes total sense. So I guess this was an epiphany I realized too. So um, a few years ago, like I said, when I when we ditched hourly cold turkey, we were doing, I guess to give that some, um, a little more context, we were doing, I was mostly doing lump sum fees um, for proposals. So I've kind of learned that my whole career. But it's always like the front end and the back end where you can't necessarily quantify things. Those are the those are the parts that um, clients seem to value the least because they, they're always in a hurry to get their project done. So the lump sum agree to that price, but then the beginning work and the end work was all the, always the things that were hard to quantify, and those are the things where it was mostly hour, hourly billing, if not all. <clears throat> so, but what I realized is we were also tracking hours with our employees, right? So. Um, and, and my personality, I'm not one to sit there and want to analyze it. I feel like it's, it was creating more work for us, for me to analyze everyone's hours. And and if there's ever a question, then I got to have a conversation about how come you're spending more time on this. We need to be eight, you know, 80% billable or hundred percent billable on this. Um, I realized that tracking hours for 10 years, I never looked at those ever. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, why are we even doing this? Right. Like yeah. I'm not looking at them anyway. There's no like data that I'm gathering from them that that maybe give us some insight as to like how we could maybe build better or maybe up our hourly weight rate, any of those things. And we also were in this time that I was able to do this was we were moving towards the value pricing and offering pricing options, which also is a is an anomaly in my in my industry. No one does that. They just send out a proposal that's 20 pages that's really a contract. Mm-hmm. And it has, and and the clients are always just looking for the bottom line anyway, right? They right. don't care about the, all those things, but it feels like that's what you got to do. Cause that's what you've always done. So, so anyway, I just had an insight one morning and I was like, wait, we're aligning, we're trying to align our clients, 
um, as a results focused um, focus, I guess, when we, when we're doing these, when we're setting up these, these engagements. So why am I tracking hours with employees? That doesn't make sense because we, we were getting away from hourly billing anyway. And I saw the power of that. And I just thought this is way easier. And it was probably more my laziness than anything (laughs) where I was like, hourly is just too much work. It's too much work to track every hour. I'd rather just give them a fee, even if we lost money on it and just have a lump sum Mm -hmm. or some kind of a value pricing idea um, where we could gauge that. Those always went way better. Clients question us way less. They just accept it. Okay. They know what they're getting into. Like you say, price or a quote, right? If we're just giving you a price, it's a fixed thing. It's not a quote where it's going to change possibly. Mm -hmm. So they just have the confidence that, okay, if that takes you a little longer or a little less, you either benefit or don't. Uh, based on that engagement. So anyway, I just decided with my employees and I have a great team and I just said, Hey, what if we just got rid of hourly, hour, uh, you know, hourly billing, hourly tracking completely. And it was almost like a hallelujah shout. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to ask like, were people, some people, some people are threatened by that employees. I mean, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yep. Let me just pause there for one second, because I've heard other people who in a different space, it's usually like legal, where the employees uh, are, or I've even talked to freelancers who who I've, I, who I've hired and said, look, I'll pay you X per week, I don't care how many hours it is, as long as you achieve these outcomes. And they're threatened uh-huh. by it, because they are either there's some kind of security blanket where they can prove that they put in the time and therefore you owe me the money. Um, and they're not as comfortable. They don't understand the value they're creating. And so they're not as comfortable kind of guaranteeing it. Um, but anyway, that's that sometimes happens with employees, but that wasn't the case with you. No, if anything, once I let the cat out of the bag, they were like, let's do it. We hate hourly billing. We hate tracking hours. Can we please do this? And so it was uh, almost a moment for me of surprise where I was like, oh, wait, these guys really want this. I don't know if I could take this back, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, we're on this road. I may not be able to ever get back to, to hourly tracking again, you know? So I kind of started, I was like, okay, okay, let's do this. And they all basically sold me on the idea more than I had to sell them. Did you have any question in your mind about you, you you have this moment where you're like, oh, this is this is nuts. Let's get rid of this. But did you have a picture of what you were going to switch to, or you just kind of let the cat out of the bag as you put it, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, now what? Yeah, no, it was. Um, I guess what I, the mindset going into it was, if if we go down this road, which we already basically were with lump sum billing, and I had in, I had um, already been doing pricing options for about a year or two. And I'd seen instant results with just offering options, just breaking down, our, even if nothing else, if we didn't actually have a value conversation or try and actually um, create pricing based on some kind of value that the client could get behind and say, yeah, we'll give you a percentage of that value if you can really create this for us. Mm-hmm. It was just giving them you know, options, just open the door for us to go. I, If anything, I feel like we're not even charging enough with options. And so I had this mindset going into it. And so the thought was if we go down this road, then I knew I do knew have to figure out a few different metrics of measuring results with employees. And so it kind of just, I said, okay, if we're going to do this, then we're just going to figure out a way to kind of track um, how employees are doing. Right. And that really came down to, let's just be results focused. Like we are with our clients. If, if we're always meeting deadlines, that was, the, that's really the key uh, in our office is just meeting deadlines for clients. 
being responsive. And, you know, if you commit to something, I don't care how long it takes you, we get it done. Mm-hmm. And so those are basically the criteria that we kind of, in my head, I was like, okay, we'll just move to this. And everyone was on board. They're like, if we stop meeting deadlines, if we stop, those were kind of the things I outlined. I said, look, let's just do a three-month trial of this. Um, actually, at the at the advice of Mark O'Brien, it was like, yeah, try a trial. That way you could take it back if for some reason you realized this was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But I think from the get-go, it was, they were just, well, let's do it. We never want to look back. We never want to track another hour again. Mm. And how many employees were we talking about at the time? At the time... I think we were four or five. We're 10 now. So mm. that was a couple years ago. Cool. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about how were you doing what you refer to as lump sum pricing back then? Were you just picking a number out of the air or was it kind of cost-based, cost plus, or what was the what was the logic at the time when you were creating those options? It was a great question. It was, um, it was kind of a combination, at least from what I had learned from others coming up in this profession was... There was a three, a few different ways to gauge it. Basically, the ones that you, one was just figure out your hours, figure out your billable rate per employee, um, as each staff, you know, whatever their billable rate was, and then look at how many hours it would take for each task. Outline that into each phase, and then kind of break that down and and use that at least as a guide to go. Okay, you know, it's going to take us fifty hours to do this. We bill hundred bucks an hour. There's our fee, mm-hmm. and then we'd also go try and figure out if we knew construction cost um, and then go, okay, what's what's a percentage of construction we could charge if we did a full scope deal on this project, which would mean that we design it to help them through construction mm-hmm. with observation and making sure it gets built the way we designed it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of look at those and go, okay, with those two and maybe another one, I forget what the other one was, how we'd look at it, but we basically look at those and go, is there any disparaging differences between those fees? And in either we pick something in the middle that feels good and just throw that into a big agreement that we call a proposal, but really it was our contract mm-hmm. with all that mumbo jumbo in there. <laughs> and then the client would just look and, and really it would just be that one fee, right? So we wouldn't give them any choice. We wouldn't give them any other way to pick us other than to go, well, now let's look at some comparisons. Mm-hmm. What are your other you know, competitors also charging? And then we'd have that conversation and generally it would be, I think partly too, because we were generalized and just lumped in with everyone else, but it would always be that, com- that, that question by the, by the developer or the owner, Hey, can you sharpen your pencil on this? <laughs> yeah, Get this down a little bit, you know? Right. Yeah. It's uh the, the, it's a classic, I think Alan Weiss is the first place I read about it in value, value-based fees where he talks about, you know, don't give the, don't give the client an ultimatum. It's like one price, take it or leave it, because then they're going to be, yeah. you know, especially if it's something they don't buy a lot of time, they're immediately going to comparison shop. And if you are unspecialized as you were at the time, it makes it relatively easy to compare apples to apples. And you've put all of this work in to put the proposal together. Now you've got a vested interest in like closing the deal and you probably will sharpen your pencils because you, you're like, well, you know, those guys down the street are going to undercut us or whatever. So yeah. it just has this, this effect of making your margins smaller and smaller. But when you give them, when you provide them with options, then it's like, oh, how should we work with Brandon versus should we work with Brandon at all? And then the whole, you've got the client having a discussion with their team around which one of these options makes the most sense for us. And now they're getting a little bit more, you know, they're doing some emotional labor to, uh, you know, consider the the proposal. And 
yeah, it just completely changes the dynamic. Couldn't agree more. Cool. Okay. So it, how did those go? So like, did it feel like you were, did it feel like, or did you know that sometimes you air quotes lost money or sometimes you hit a home run or what was, what was, how comfortable did it feel? You know, were you guys scraping by or was it like, oh, this is okay, but I feel like we could do better. Yeah. I think, um, the mindset always was, I almost expected them to ask that question. So you kind of geared up, you go, okay, if I put this price out, am I willing to chop it by 10%, you know? Mm -hmm. So you kind of, I kind of already factored that in like mentally that they're going to ask me to sharpen my pencil and I'm going to go, okay, sure. I'm going to concede a little bit. And then it's more negotiation of how much do we, do we concede, you know? Cause we, right. like you said, we put so much time into that engagement where you feel like almost like entitled to it or like you have to close it because you spent hours on a proposal, way too much time, not getting to the heart of like what, what maybe it should be with them, you know? So, so generally speaking though, I feel like we, we did okay. We've always been really efficient and worked well and run a good business. So we've never, I wouldn't say we necessarily lost money, but I can, especially looking back now with this new way of doing things. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we left so much money on the table. Mm-hmm that we could have had but also i think that was just as we've evolved to we've gained a better reputation and we're specialized of course but but generally speaking i feel like we we did okay even though it was they were low fees they were really low yeah well as i think the the key is there you know you were leaving lots of money on the table but it does there is this dynamic that that if you so people listening you can you can just start doing value-based pricing today if you want it's not going to have a, and it will work, but it's not going to have a really meaningful impact on increasing your fees if you are undifferentiated because, because the client can find a cheaper option, a replacement, like a, a, a reasonable substitute for less money. So if you, if you just say, oh, normally I would charge, you know, whatever, $10,000 of hours for this engagement. So I'm going to charge them 50 because Stark says value pricing will increase my fees. And, and it's true if they don't, you know, it's, it's this interplay that goes back and forth. As you become more specialized, there are fewer and fewer reasonable alternatives. The client and clients eventually have nothing to compare you to except for your own options. So you, you can't just be a complete cog and air quotes, get away with this because there's someone cheaper right next door. And there, if there's no meaningful difference between the two of you, they're going to pick the cheaper one. So, yeah, so there, there can be a ceiling on it. You need, you, you need both things. I agree a hundred percent. And I would say even just that, I, I think it's you that quotes this, but if you are not being differentiated or there's not a perceived difference, you have a marketing problem, mm -hmm. right. Or a messaging problem. Like you said, you're not differentiated enough. And so that's been key for sure. Yeah. And, he's, and you need to be differentiated in a way that your client cares about has to be meaningful to them. It can't just yeah. be like, we know we're better than, you know, Alice or Bob down the street. It's like the client needs to recognize that there's a difference. So, okay. So as you were sort of niching down and finding your specialization uh, and and sending out these three option proposals, what, what did it start to, at what point did you feel like, wow, this was a really good idea. I'm so glad we did this. Yeah. So um, just to go back a few years when I, so I had been in, I've always been involved in like coaching groups and trying to like, I feel like a lonely entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I'm more an entrepreneur who had a passion for something and became an entrepreneur. 
although I realized I'm more entrepreneurial. So I say that in that I was part of this marketing group called Architects Marketing. And I've never, and I should say this too, I've never found anything that really related directly to my industry. So I've always had to look outside of that. Mm. And so um, in this marketing group, they used to talk about options, but I could never figure out how to make it work without creating more work for myself. Cause I felt like now I have to create three going back to what I referred to earlier as agreements. Like I felt like I had to make three contracts or work this into it. It just felt too convoluted and too, um, too complex to try and create options. Mostly because I felt like it was more work for myself, but it just never made sense. And then I saw Blair ends came out with that book, price and creativity. Mm -hmm. And just that simple way I'd never thought, I always thought, is this diluting us our reputation? If we put it into columns and outline some options and do a high anchor and do this. And, but I thought, you know, what the heck I'm going to even, I'm just going to buy the book, try it out and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so what that really did for me was just create a mindset of like, this is super simple. It's not an agreement. There's a difference between a contract slash agreement. I use those synonymously versus an actual proposal, which might be the words out of your mouth or some written form. It's like, keep it to one page or five pages or just simplify it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did that and tried it with a client and it was instantaneous. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. Why have I not been doing this sooner? Right. Okay. I love that. (laughs) Let's talk more about the, the single page columns proposal, because that's, I've never done that. I always did the you know yeah. the template that you're familiar with, but I know it works. I know a lot of people who use it, but I don't talk about it that much, not because it doesn't work, but because I don't have personal experience with it. So maybe you could share, share some tactical specifics around how do you do that? I mean, it seems like, it, you know, as an outsider, it seems like uh, putting it like an elaborate outdoor space on the roof of a building has to be a gigantic project. And, and how could it, how could you boil it down to one page? How do you present Uh it? What is their reaction? So, yeah. So if you could kind of paint a picture of, of what that moment of truth is with the potential buyer. Yeah, of course. Um, And let me just preface this by saying this has been a four or five year process now of evolving it to simplify it as much. So it's gone through very, uh, I'd say quite a few, maybe 10 iterations mm-hmm. of us kind of experimenting with the client to go, okay, originally it was Blair and said one page. So I'm, I'm sticking to exactly that, right? One page, no more fit everything on one page. It became three columns. The, the, the challenge was, okay, I understand the idea of it. High anchor, middle option is generally where people want you to go. You're trying to gear steer people towards that. This aversion bias, so it became a lot of text, smaller text to be able to fit those things into the three columns. Right. That was the biggest constraint is how do I fit all this information into a, in, into that, you know? So it went from the one page, like let's say eight point, seven point, maybe six point font sometimes. Maybe oh, they have geez. to get a magnifying glass about to read it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Depending on the project, right? So like, but, um, and then it was like, that's too complicated. But yet here's the power of it. Doesn't, it didn't really matter. Because clients could just see at least, like you went, like you said earlier, they started going, how do we, we engage with Lob64 more than I need to get another option? Let's look at some others, you know? So it felt like instantaneous was, it gave me more power and control over, you know what, I'm just going to, on the high anchor, it, I'd, I'd make sure that if we, that whatever we proposed could actually, we could actually deliver on it. 
but it gave me the ability to go, you know what, I'm just going to bump that up because that was going to make the middle option look so good. Right. Right. And the middle option is really where we wanted people to be. So it's like, if they chose it, great, but I almost didn't want them to choose it. I just wanted to create that high anchor. And so it allowed me to go, it kind of empowered me to go, you know what, let's just try charging. Let's just try doubling our fee on this and see what happens, you know? Yep. And so it, it worked, you know, it worked enough where I was like, this is, a better success rate than I had just doing agreements. And it was making us more money because we had that empowerment to, to charge more. And okay, so and as it evolved over time, how did what did you end up with? Uh, did you are you still doing the three column one sheeter? Or is it some hybrid? Yeah, so um, over time, um, kind of went from the one page to we might need a little more information, then I discovered your stuff. Um, got your ditching hourly book kind of, you know, it was already kind of on the same page there, but that just kind of reaffirmed where we were wanting to go. And then when I discovered you had this five page template, if anything, it was like, I want to see the way you described it was like, there's some things we were, we were trying to have these value conversations through this whole thing it was like, it's more than the proposal. I would say, like you said, it was the, us differentiating ourselves through expertise and then having these upfront conversations to go what are your success metrics? What's your desired future state? You know, yep. we're meeting a year from now, you're really happy. What's happened for you to be really happy? These kinds of questions yep. so that they could see we care about, you know, we're really, and, and also asking the, you know, why us, why now, why this kind of thing like you go through. Yeah, That was so powerful because then they're almost selling you on why they want you to be exactly with them, right? Yeah. And I don't, I'm not as good like at talking them almost out of it like you, like you say, but I love that idea of just going, you know, why us of all? It's like, you know, these great options. Why would you choose us? So it was that combination. And then with your five page template, what we did was it's our templates actually five, four pages. Mm-hmm. We call it the purpose package, but it's this value conversation where we put all the stuff up front. Like you had, you know, it's a basic intro. Thanks for the conversation today, blah, blah, blah. Um, kind of point some things out. Hey, we'll be following up on this proposal at this time. And then we go through the kind of outline what their success metrics are, um, what the current status of the, of the basically kind of taking a lot of your stuff mm-hmm. um, and putting it into. And then after that, we kind of outline that. Then the next page would be, we still have it outlined in three columns, but we've gotten so, we got a lot of feedback on this back and forth. Mark O'Brien helped us with just even, um, he's like, you know what, rather than even writing like $4,000, $50,000, just write 50K. 75k he's like limit the amount of brain cells that the client has to um has to think about Mm -hmm. and then also the key for me was the way you describe it is if if they were to explain this and go to their wife or significant other or friend or anyone and say they could as easily say i would pick option two i would pick option three you know because it's written in a way that just sense it's like oh they clearly understand us because then they, they want our success. Um, to me, the pricing is actually secondary or tertiary to what that proposal really does. And that is to define, to show, to represent that we listen to you. We care about your goals. Those things, those that's more important for us to get right. And then the money is just how we, how we are able to get you there. You know, so I've even tried to emphasize that with clients that, hey, let's focus more on this page and make sure the success is right that your desired future state is right, that any stakes that you could see, you know, what's at stake, 
Um, those are the most important things for me. So then they go, wow, they're very aligned. The money almost seems secondary. If they, if they feel like these guys are going to, we have full trust, they're going to deliver the value, way more value than any of the money we could pay them. Yeah. The most important thing, in my opinion, the most important thing in that proposal is getting the situation appraisal, right? Which is what you're describing. It's like current state, desired future state, and then why us? So and it, and if you can't answer those questions, dear listener, following along at home, it's because you didn't ask enough or the correct or enough of the question of the why conversation, the value conversation, whatever you want to call it. Blair and I are completely yeah. on the same page with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and getting that, if you get that down, it's like you said, Brandon, that, that the money becomes, it's like not even really a question. It's you're just like, yeah, it just seems like a deal. And I do like the point you made about keeping it simple enough that a stranger could look at it and be like, oh, you know, and, and it would make sense to them. Like they'd say, oh, I would go with option two. It seems like the best choice based on this like plain language. So let's go a little bit deeper into for something like what you do to an outsider. I don't know. I have zero empathy or understanding of your client's desired outcomes. So how, how would, it's so creative. It's like, is there a way, how do you tie it back to uh, some kind of a success metric when it seems so, I'm imagining it's just very, like a very aesthetic type of thing. So like, what, what does that look like in a proposal from someone like you guys or a, a landscape architect? Yeah. So um, I'll try and answer this as best as I understood the question, but yeah, it's, I think it's an ever evolving thing for us is figuring out like, honestly, our biggest challenge right now is our goal would be this year to actually start having real value conversations. Cause up to this point, I would still say it's kind of like um, we're, we've been trying to figure out a formula where like even on the fly or beforehand, we could kind of determine a value that we're bringing to it. Like, for example, in us real estate, it's all about the I say this with the caveat that that not every client, this is a big generalization for developers, but it's all about the ROI, mm-hmm. right? They, and ROI meaning return on investment. What's the return on investment? If they're gonna do this project, they're obviously doing it, um, not out of the goodness of their heart, <laughs> but to make money, right? I mean, hopefully there is that, I, that aspect too, right? Build the community, contribute, those should all be a uh, part of it. But, and and like I said, big generalization ROI, but figuring out, so so I guess what's come of that is over the, the course of the years, it's us being, and us being focused, it's like, okay, how do we add value to to these? And what we've realized is it's way more about the those metrics, because if they feel like we're aligned there, we can almost propose anything and they would go, well, you're the expert. And as long as it, we feel like you're meeting our, our goals to help us be successful, you're in this with us. It doesn't matter if you put two fire pits, five fire pits, <laughs> one pool that's this size or that size. Yeah. Obviously there's budget constraints. So we have to make sure we're within a budget. And that would be also part of the value of like what we offer is we can help you through that, right? We can we can design stuff. Um, we start out big, big idea, grand. What's the best, most amazing idea we can offer? And through our creativity, obviously that's one of our, probably our most special sauce, I would say, of, of what we can offer is our creativity. But through that is, um, it's more than a pretty picture. It's like, this is going to help us build community, you know, uh, improve our occupancy rates, lower our vacancy rates, mm. increase our bottom line. The project's going to be more valuable. Our investors will make their the returns we've promised them. Everyone's happy, you know? 
Yeah. Or so, someone will offer to buy this for a super high value kind of thing. Right. Okay. So so it sounds like the when you asked them that question, you said earlier, like, you know, if we meet again in a year and you're delighted, why are you delighted? Then it would be things like our occupancy rates are higher, our, you know, that list of things that you just rattled off. Mm -hmm. And they believe that, that you participate. I mean, they, they could do the project without you, right? They could just, you know, I, yep. I assume, I mean, there might be some regulations involved, but, but presumably, a developer could just hire a bunch of workers and just say like, you know, put some fire pits up here, but they don't think that's the, the people you're want to talk to don't think that's sufficient for some reason. Correct. Yes. So they, and, and also I would say this because of our specialty, like um, there really is no one else that's, that's claimed the expertise that we have mm -hmm. within the industry. I was framing this within the industry of landscape architecture, because we do have to have a license per state to operate and to be able to, get drawn through the city and we have to put stamps on them like engineers and architects do. Yeah. Um, so there is that licensure and credibility and, you know, um, certain things we have to regulations we have to comply with, mm -hmm. but the, what's, I think what's really helped is this space is a complex space. It's really a building system. If you think about it more like that, like we're putting these large objects we're in, you know, we're adding water to a rooftop mm -hmm. structurally, um, if you have improper drainage or there's a leak, you could have failure of a roof. I mean, there's people that could get hurt through this, you know, if like imagine a big tree planter falls through the roof into someone's living room or, you know, there's a lot of things like that. And so there's implications that are it's it, there's high stakes really to put these types of spaces on a roof yeah. because one cost um, and liability. Right. So let me pause you there real quick, because there's there's a bunch of software developers listening who don't remotely approach this level of risk with their projects, who still think that it's too risky for me to uh, to me to me to give a fixed price. It's too risky for me to give a fixed price. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't guarantee anything. And it's like it's comical compared to what you're talking about, the, the level of of certainty that you would need is so much higher for what you do than what someone who's building a rails application might do and yet you can do it and it and it's work and it works and it's you i think you said in your email that you've like increased your fees like three to five times from when from before yeah right so I, i'm tempted to i'm like getting super curious about your job but i guess that's not relevant to the yeah to the to the conversation um, so how, how long, let's see, let's talk money. So you don't do any of the, I feel like it's obvious you don't build any of the stuff. You don't get a crane and put stuff on a roof personally. No. So how, what's a typical budget that a developer is coming to the table with and how common is it for the, for the, them to be, have unrealistic expectations around the total cost of the entire project do they usually kind of know how much it's going to be or is it more like look this is how much money we have we need to make something work within this budget yeah so great question and this is something that we've been trying to answer for years and i feel like we probably have the best answer um, at this point than we ever have and it really so and the more i understand also this goes back to expertise the more you understand about a you know your specific niche the more value you truly can offer because us being in the mindset of a real estate developer and trying to go, okay, empathetically, if we're going, if this was my project, 
there's a lot on the line. We're talking uh, the projects we're working on. We're talking 100, 200 million dollar projects, right? Mm -hmm. Where these developers will bring on investors. They have to put money on the line first before a bank will give them a loan, right? Let's just say they went in the, the 100 million dollar project and they need the problem now with developers is the banks now change their terms. They want 40 percent loan to value. They they'll give you a 60 percent LTV loan to value. So that means the developer has to come up with 40 percent upfront you know, versus 15% even six months ago. So there's a lot on the line, but generally what happens is they go, okay, they do enough due diligence and, and design of a site to go, this is feasible. We can build this for X amount of dollars. And then they go to a bank or investors and go, okay, this is going to take a hundred million dollars to build this project. And that would, um, and I'll get into the nuance of our stuff, which is the it's almost laughable, but they they don't really have any idea what that's going to cost. They just go, we have a hundred million dollars, and they do some very basic budgeting for our space. Let's say I think now they're getting a little more savvy, especially here in my local market, where they go, okay, let's throw two million bucks at the budget, or th you know, a million bucks, and and see what we can do. So they go into it very vague with this hundred million dollar bucket, going, we need to pay for everything with this, and then we come on. And this is the famous question, what's your budget? And they go, oh, we don't know, you know, or they won't tell you because, and it's generally because they don't want to share it. I mean, it's not that they don't want to share it. They really don't know. That's what I've discovered is they really have no idea. And so we used to go, so we've changed our terminology and actually our mindset to go, we now actually, that's part of it. We're actually establishing a budget um, at the outset. So like mm -hmm. in the proposal phase, um, or, or right after, assuming they move forward with us, we actually just throw it on the table and we throw it at what we call a rough order of magnitude cost. So it's we just throw it in a range, just like we do proposal fees and things. We go, this project based on previous, and now that we have experience, we kind of have a basic understanding of what these could cost because we've been tracking them. Mm -hmm. But we go, it's going to be between $1 and $3 million for this. And we're waiting for their reaction. Mm -hmm. And we call it designer-informed budgeting versus cost estimating. Because really what we're trying to do is, is we want to get alignment on that early so that they can dial it in. Because going back to the bucket of money, if they have a hundred million, we can help them deprioritize maybe some finishes on the architecture, or they need to tell us, what do you really value here in this space that we're doing? You say it's going to help you. And to be quite honest, the spaces we're designing really are like the biggest selling point to their project because all things being equal, um, units of buildings, they're all very similar. They use similar architects. The the layout of the overall apartment buildings are very similar. So there's not much differentiation. And when you look at their marketing and sales of the project, it's always interior and exterior amenities. Mm -hmm. So those two combined are really what makes something, make a project stand out. So they see the value of, they're like, okay, well, and, and now they have to be competitive. So it's created a, a scenario where they are willing to take more from the building, let's say, or take some from some other budgets. So it's really an upfront thing. They have no idea. They just have a big bucket of money and they're hoping that they can get all this thing, all this in, you know, for what they, what they want. And so then it becomes our job to come in and help them inform them so they can make some better decisions, but it's not until we get into the project. Okay. So really, yeah. So let's, let's uh let me ask a couple of clarifying questions so when you're talking about the 100 million that's for the entire building that would be for the entire site right to develop the site okay. bring the building up let's just say that would be overall encompassing the whole site project building everything 
okay, soup to nuts. There was an empty lot. Yeah. And now there's a skyscraper or whatever. And, and so when yep. you're, when you're sitting down with them, when you said like, uh, this is going to be between one and 3 million for the our for the, for the, the complete soup to nuts of just the roof space. Yep. yep. Have you already, you've, they've already engaged you or that is part of your sales process? They, at that point, they've already engaged us. So what do your three options look like? What are the, like, what, what are the common differences or maybe even just think back to your last proposal if they're all like very different. What what are the different levels of engagement that you typically include, or what what do you chop out from the the, the top option for the lower options? How do they compare to each other? Well, here's the interesting part, and this is what I was going to um, actually make a point to your proposal, which I loved. It kind of, um, in some ways, felt like a conflict to true value pricing. But the incremental options, the fact that they can build option one to two to three, it, that works perfectly for how, because we've played around with like, do we just say, okay, for 100,000, this is what we could do for, for you, right? Mm -hmm. But in the development world, it's tough because they have certain requirements that they cannot get a permit unless they have full construction documents, meaning documentation, detailing for how an idea can get built, right? So so what we really, I would say every project, there's slight variations, but generally speaking, it's a option one would be conceptual phase, conceptual and visualization. So we give them the big idea. We create the vision by 3D drawings and conceptual kind of line drawings of layout, spatial layout, uh, relationships, that kind of thing. That's option one. <clears throat> option two then would be to get full documentation and permits approved. So that becomes the documentation phase. Mm -hmm. And option three is the one that they generally, it's the high anchor. This is where, quite honestly, we've just been experimenting because we're like, what can we offer that's really more valuable than, and I should say the final stage of any project would be construction observation. So yeah. once you've got the permit drawings, they've got it bid, they're actually starting construction, then they like, especially if you're an architect um, over a building, they want you involved to the very end, right? To make sure all the detailing's correct when problems arise, you're there to to provide solutions or options or change things, that kind of thing. So that would be option three is really a kind of the observation, what we call advisory now, because yep. we're looking at it going, how could we offer value through, not through just construction, but maybe through um, even to help with their marketing at the end, like update our 3D drawings, yep. be there to advise when plants die, what could, you know, what could they do, that kind of thing to where um, there's a multi-year kind of phase. So that's the basic breakdown. And the beauty is that it's incremental. So they go, okay, I tell them you can choose option three at any time, you know? Mm -hmm. So if anything, they go, I could choose option. We'll start at option one. And then they invariably, I guess the beauty of our, the way we work is they really have to do option two, at least the way we've broken it down. Cause mm -hmm. there's no way they can get permit drawings without that. In theory, could they take, let's say they just did option one and they take the deliverables from that and bring it to someone cheaper to do the permitting and all definitely this. yes so yeah. they could but they generally don't they can they generally don't i think once you have the trust um you know and to be honest when we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars and you if you just factored in the percentage let's just say on a hundred million dollar project we're charging anywhere from 100 to 200 grand mm -hmm. for our fee right it's so minuscule when you look at and and here's something too we figured out is we're now actually doing calculations um we've been looking at the studies and things of like and talking to management companies that manage these projects to go, 
what are the true value adds with good amenities? We're talking, now we have actual numbers to go. So we calculate that for them and go, this is the potential value with great amenities is Mm -hmm. over the life of the project, your, your project will be worth more than, you know, 10 to 20 million more kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, and frame, we're starting to frame it that way, or it's 20 cents per square foot. You add to your unit cost that can add up quick. If you have a 500 unit project, you know? Yeah. So could do you, I, I know I'm, I'm uh, teeing one up for you as a softball question. Could you yeah. ever, could you imagine ever going that deep into, into the sort of lifetime value of your contribution if you hadn't specialized in such a specific thing? Um, definitely not. As you probably already know, it's just like when you're generalized, you're taking on every project. The funny thing about general firms, gen- at least when you speak to the employees, and I'm speaking just from a few that I've talked to different firms that I know, mm-hmm. is it's always like there's those projects you really don't want, but you're structured in a way where you have to take them and no one really wants to do them or they're not exciting. And so right. you take them. So there's just not enough knowledge to really go deep on one or the fees are so low because you are lumped in too being the generalist. So they're like, now we see you as vanilla versus like, you know, pralines and cream or some other (laughs) better option. You know, you're just a vanilla landscape architect lumped with everyone else. So there's no opportunity to really do that, or it's not worth it because there's not enough value for you to just, you're barely just scraping by on a fee, let's say to, and they don't, I would say they more commoditize your services um, with landscape too. Think of just, if I say landscape, what's the connotation there? You know, it's going to be, oh, plants, trees, soil. Like, how much can that be? That can't be that much. But there's way that goes into it. And when you really, like, if you break down what a landscape architect is, but it's just no one gets that, you know? So so that specialty definitely, like, honestly, they don't even know how to categorize us. And I love that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what you want. Category of one. It's like. Yes. You're competing with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the options come in. Yeah. So amazing. That's fabulous. Uh, and and to reiterate, you're not getting bored, right? <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't be more excited, honestly, mm-hmm. than now. Five years in, six years in, um, it's just. I mean, to me, I, I, let me give you a quick example. Mm-hmm. The I have an employee. Okay, when I first did it, his favorite thing, and he's my number one guy. He still is. He's been with me since the very beginning. A, a year in, I hired him as an intern. He's turned out to be my rock star, number one employee of all time. He's the greatest. Just drink the Kool-Aid, as I like to say, at Loft 6-4. So he loves it. But he was skeptical when we first, this was in 2017, when I hired a, a marketing group based on this, some of these, this information of like, maybe we should pick a specialty. Let's find something that's specific to us that we can really like become what we are, become different. And he was like, I could just sense, he's like, he wasn't excited to go rooftop amenities. That just, that term even sounds like dilutes our profession. And he wanted to do parks. And here we are three years in and he's a project manager. He's dealing with these clients every day. He told me this last year. He's like, Brandon, I got to say, I've completely changed my mind shift or my mindset on this. After I met with a client, every time I'm on these meetings, they're like, Nate, what do you think? You're the expert. What do you like? And they really care about what we say. They really care about our opinions because they see us way different than they did in the past where it was just like, oh, you're the landscape guys. You know, we're always the afterthought. We're in a four hour meeting and we get five minutes at the end if we're lucky. And we're like, why are we even here? You know, because right. it's just so downplayed for the most part yeah. that now it's like, 
they see us as experts and it's like, it's just the most amazing thing to be in the, like it builds my confidence more than anything to know, you know? Yeah. They just care about my, I think I actually know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, yeah, that's the best part. You know, so he's like, I'm a fan, whatever you say, whatever you want to do in the future, let's do it. He's like this, I am sold on rooftop amenities. <laughs> cool. That's great. Oh, well, that's probably a good place to press the, press the pause button. And, um, so thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it is, it's always great to have an example from a space that most, most listeners are not, we actually have a, a non-trivial number of architects that listen, but it's, it's mostly not architects or especially even more specific landscape architects. So it's great to have an example from outside of your industry to kind of be like, oh, that makes total sense to me because we don't do that. So like the listener, like, I don't, I don't do that. So there's no, there's no feeling of like, I can't do that. It's more complicated than that. So you, they're sort of hearing it from the outside and being like, yeah, that makes total sense. Like if I was going to spend a hundred million dollars to develop a building and I wanted someone to, to do the rooftop amenities, there'd be no, it's like, yeah, you just go to the rooftop amenity people. Like that's the place, like you yeah. are the, the go-to firm for this thing. And, and the 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 level of risk is just so it's such a great example because the risk is so high the numbers are so high and the the consequences of something going wrong or the impact of something going wrong is so big that why would someone risk it to not go with the best you know it's it's just like yeah it's great so uh, excellent so where can people go to find out more about what you're doing maybe check out uh, check out I, I, if someone needs fire pits on their roof, maybe, like, yeah. maybe they should reach out. Yeah. Um, go to our website, loft64.com. It's all spelled out. So LF, you know, just all words, no yep. numbers. Yeah. Um, you, you can also look us up loft64 on, on LinkedIn and Instagram is where we're, um, prevalent. So just do a quick search. You'll see a lot of cool videos and things of what we're doing. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful stuff. So yeah, so great. And that's loft, L-O-F-T, 64.com, spelled out. But I'll, I'll, link, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, Brandon, thanks again for joining me. Hey, thanks for all you do. Honestly, sincerely, like you've helped us get to where we are with your stuff. So keep putting it out. Will do. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. -L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.